If you want this podcast free of ads, follow us now on patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. Meet 2024's most anticipated robot vacuum, Eufy X10 Pro Omni. With powerful 8,000 PA suction and MopMaster's dual mop pads, it keeps your floor sparkling clean. It's the winner of five Best of CES awards, and Digital Trends says it boasts almost all the same features as robot vacuums that cost twice as much. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com, and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. What in the world is happening on Wall Street? Economic indicators. Who knows where this is going to end up? To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. How are you doing there? It's podcast time. I hope all is well. And uh, the weekend has been fine and the week ahead is even finer. finer. (laughs) How are you, Ed? I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. You've been good this week? I I have been as good as I possibly could be. Under the circumstances. Under the circumstances. But... What have you been reading this week? I know you've you've had your head stuck in books. Yeah, no, I've been down here in the basement. I've been full of books, full of books. Yeah, I've been reading a bizarre book, John. Bizarre <laughs> but really surprise, brilliant book surprise. called "The Merchant of Prato: The Daily Life in a Medieval Italian City" by Iris Origo. Right, lovely. So it's the daily life in a medieval Italian city. And the reason I'm fascinated by this is I am now obsessing about, not obsessing about, but I'm trying to do a piece of work on the extraordinary exuberance of Italian merchant cities in the early medieval period. Now, the reason I'm doing this... Yeah, yeah, I was going to say, the next question is why? Why? Because these were fulcrums of innovation. These were unbelievably curious places. So... You think about Italy, I've always thought that geography matters a lot to economics. Oh, yeah. So think about Italy. It's like this big old boost that sticks out in the middle of the Mediterranean, Mm -hmm. right? So everything that goes through the Mediterranean has to either land or depart from Italy. And particularly back then when the the sea was the main thoroughfare, right? So I'm interested in why the Renaissance happened in Italy. This has been intriguing me for many, many years. Right. Why was it? Why was uh, why it, in Italy and not in Spain and or in France? Spain or in Germany or, or Britain Germany, yeah, or, yeah. you know, even in Ireland, God forbid, yeah. right? Because we were very far away from the action. Well, there so, was a mini Renaissance, though, in the 800s under was, Charlemagne. In Germany and no, France. No, in Germany, yeah, yeah, there was. There was. I don't know, Charlemagne is something you've uh, yes, I've, I'm obsessed about for many of, years. Of yeah. But no, so I'm interested in, so I'm looking at the 21st century economy. Mm. And what's going on? Where all the nodes of innovation are happening? And you have the Silicon Valley, and now the Silicon Valley people are going to Texas, and there you And say, why does it happen in certain areas, right? Yeah. So I went back to the first place it really happened, which was Florence in the 1400s. 
1300s, 1400s. Yeah. My friend Dante and all those carry on, right? And what I'm trying to figure out is why did it happen there? And this book is about this extraordinary character called Francesco Daniti, who mm. was the merchant of Prato. And what he left was an, an unbelievable library of notes and letters about his business. So he starts this business in Avignon in What was he? He was, a, he was a trader. He was a merchant. In, in right? anything in particular? In everything. This is oh, the interesting. I see. Okay. Everything. He right. started originally. He's a proper corner shop. He, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he started as a corner shop. And the interesting thing, he maintained his corner shop. Now, the point is that what intrigues me is how these people expanded their extraordinary network of commerce all around the world, yeah. all around the known world. And then that got me thinking about what currency they used. Yeah. And they used a gold currency called the Florin, the Florentian Florin, right? And then it got me thinking about what we were talking about last week, which was Bitcoin, Bitcoin and this yeah. idea of digital gold. Yeah. And the idea that the Bitcoiners and the cryptocurrencyers and all these people think digital gold is a really good thing. So they say it's digital gold because gold is a good thing. Yeah. And so I went back to the era where gold was actually the, the currency, yeah. right? And the reason I mentioned our friend Dante is that Dante reserved the eighth circle of hell for somebody who debased the gold currency. A poor, <laughs> a poor lad called Adam, who actually happened to be English in the right. inferno. Right? How did he debase the, the Well, coin? because you see, what happened was the gold currency, now this goes back to the Bitcoiners yeah. and their, you know, their extraordinary obsession with the purity of currency. So Adam, God bless him, right, tried to debase the Florentine florin. And what he did was that you'd put copper into gold. So you'd, okay. you'd get the gold currency, yeah. get loads of them, you'd melt it down. You'd put copper in, you'd take out the gold. So it would be not 100% gold, it would be 60% gold. And right. you'd pass it off okay. as this new currency. Right? And this, this, by the way, goes back to what you were saying last week about bad currencies elbow out good currencies. Gresham's Law. Gresham's, Gresham's law. law. That's what it was. And you know the hotel. Boom. The, you know the hotel, the Gresham? And yeah. The Gresham. It's named after Gresham. Really? Yes. This is all coming. It's all of a piece, man. It's all. It seems in Gresham's Law. Gresham was Irish. Gresham was a paddy, yeah. This ah, is all like, right. Okay. There, 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 there is a deep, deep seam of economics in Ireland. We don't see it, but there right. is a historical seam. Okay, but let's good go back. Stuff. Go on. Let's go back. So the idea was debasing the currency, right? And mm. The Bitcoiners and all the crypto people say this is a disastrous thing, right? And Dante agreed with them, which is why poor Adam, if you really want to read the Inferno, Adam was down there with the sodomites and the blasphemers, right. okay? Because sodomy and blaspheming was for Dante, the worst thing possible. Not sure. as bad as Lucifer, but not that yeah, much yeah. way. So the point was, I'm trying to figure out is, what was the reason for this obsession with the purity of the currency? And because, because the merchants loved the purity of the, of the currency. Sure. Because they earned the currency. Yeah. But then I was thinking about, what about all the other fuckers who lived in Florence? The tradesmen, the craftsmen, the laborers, what did they actually think of it? And then what you do is you go to what happened during the Black Death, right? So Dante is right in 1300. Black Death happens in 1338, right? One third of the European population is destroyed. Okay, die from this thing. Right. So the labor force collapses. 
And you think, what happens? And we're going to talk about pandemics and the reaction to pandemics and something called the Great Resignation later on. Oh, okay. Sounds good. About why people are leaving their jobs. But I go back to this idea. Why, what happened during a pandemic with a fixed currency? What you had was the pandemic happens, loads of people die, the labor force collapses. Rather than the currency adjust downwards to take account of the new reality, yeah. what adjusted was slavery. So this is a weird thing. Right, right? come on. So the Explain black that. death leads to this enormous increase in slavery in Italy, in Florence. Why? Because the people are dead. They need new people to come in. So the Italians say, okay, well, slavery, you know, as long as it's infidels, non-Christians, right, yeah, it's yeah, all yeah, going yeah, to be great. Yeah. So there's one reason that many, many people have always thought of, why do Italians look quite un-Mediterranean? So if you're in Florence, if you're in Turin, if you're in Milan, even if you're in Rome, lots of blonde people, lots of blue-eyed people, and geneticists think it's because after the Black Death, there was a massive increase in slavery from the East, right, okay. from Russia, from the Caucasus, from the Caspian, from the Tartar republics, people who are slightly Asiatic looking. Yeah. And now what you have, they're all blended into the Italian population. And now in Italy, in contrast to Spain, for example, you have an extraordinary percentage of Mediterraneans who don't look like Mediterraneans at all. And the reason is that in the beginning of the Renaissance, you have this amazing injection of different genes coming from slavery. Now, the reason this is interesting is that had the Florentines been able to debase their currency, yeah. the currency could have fallen to take into account of the fact that their labor force had fallen and therefore their goods would become cheaper abroad and they could have actually said, you know what, we have less people working, our goods will come cheaper and you guys buy them at a sure. cheaper price. But no, they were but, obsessed by the strong currency. But it was the fact that it was linked to gold. And exactly. That, so, so it couldn't be devalued. devalued. And yeah. this comes back to our Bitcoiners. So the thing about the crypto people and the Bitcoiners mm. is it's great to have a new currency, but what happens when things go wrong? How can your currency adjust when, for example, you get hit by a pandemic or you get hit by a recession or a depression? Yeah. So again, if you come back to my monetary economics was learned through the prism of the Great Depression. So every person who studied monetary economics or who is studying monetary economics knows that the reason the Great Depression was so long and so profound mm -hmm. and so debilitating, leading to Hitler and all these other things, sure. was because they wouldn't devalue their currency. They were obsessed by gold, right? So what I'm saying to Bitcoiners, crypto people, is what happens when there is a crisis? So the crypto people say... So if, if crypto was the currency of the world and, and no fiat currency. Yeah. So the, and, 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 that, okay. and that's their objective. Yeah. Okay. So what happens if there is a crisis, a recession, a default crisis, a depression? What do you do then? Because you have to print money. So what happens in a depression, the Great Depression, was that people got nervous about money and they started to hoard money and money disappeared. Yeah. When money disappears, the whole system coagulates yeah, yeah. and nothing happens. So Roosevelt, who was for ages saying, oh, we can't come off the gold standard. One, actually, one morning over a number of weeks said, you know what? This gold is nonsense. You know, 
Keynes described as a barbarous relic, yeah. gold, right? This obsession with gold. And what Roosevelt said was, you know what? We're just going to print dollars. People are going to believe us. And these dollars are going to be real. Yeah. And that's what actually got the but, world out of depression. So what I'm interested in is, what did the Bitcoiners think would happen in a great Do depression? they not mine more Bitcoin. But they can't because they've said there's going to be a cap on it. Right. Okay. So this is what so they is lift it. the cap. I mean, is is that going to be a move? Well, no, because their whole their whole one of their great big rallying cries is that the cap gives it integrity, and you can't change right. it. And the money's so. What I'm interested in is what happens in the crypto world when there's a recession. What happens in the crypto world when there's a pandemic? To go back to our friends. The Florentines. Yeah. So can you imagine in a world run by crypto or Bitcoin, where it's a fixed supply of money, if you have a pandemic, and the, pand- the government says, well, we've got this pandemic, so you've all got to sit in your holes for a couple of months, maybe a year, and you can't work. Closing down the society. Okay. The quid pro quo is, okay, if you close down the society and we can't work, we still need income. So what happens in our world is the government says, oh, okay, cool. Well, we're just going to print money. We're going to buy debt with this printed money. Yeah. Okay. And we're going to give you money. So what has happened in the last couple of years is people have been given money for free. That's the beauty of fiat currency. It's flexible. And you know my whole obsession that economics is much more evolutionary than scientific, than engineering. Yeah. So in an evolutionary system, the most adaptable product is the one that wins. Yes, of course. So yeah. if you introduce rigidity into an evolutionary system, you lose, right? You completely lose because yeah. once you rigidify or you make calcify your money or whatever, and the system is trying to rotate and trying to churn, and you say, we can't churn, you lose. So what would have happened in a crypto world during the pandemic is the government would have said, you can't work, sorry, but we've no money to give you. Yeah. Because we can't print it. So what would have happened? You would have had a national riot all over the world, right? So the thing about the crypto guys is that I get all the tech bro shit. I get all the, you know, we're libertarians and yada, yada, yada. We don't need government. We don't need taxes. We don't I understand all that. Yeah. But it doesn't make any sense in a democracy because a democracy has to be flexible and has to be able to react to what's going on. Well, I'll just leave you with one idea before we talk about the great resignation. Yes. Well, you and I should resign anyway. I mean, well, I, I did many years ago. <laughs> we have that <laughs> job for you. This is the result. <laughs> exactly. But I'll leave you with this idea that in 1929, the stock market collapsed. The fallout from the stock market collapse was all asset values fell. Yeah. When all asset values fall, the people who owe money to the institutions who lend to them have no money, they have no assets, they have no collateral, so they default. When you default in a system that's as complex as our modern system, you get what they call cross defaults, right? So good assets get sold to pay for bad assets. So you get an implosion of the system. Now, if you are obsessed by not printing money during these periods, all you get is a massive, massive amplification of the crisis. Defaults, we get more defaults, we get more defaults, etc. And the more defaults you have, the more people who have money hoard money and take it out of the system because yeah, yeah, yeah. they're worried. 
So you get a perennial depression. That's what happened. And in 1931 and 32, a small man with a mustache claiming to be German, but actually, actually Austrian, said, you know what? You are the people who are suffering. The average person is suffering. You're in default. Vote for me and I will sort everything out. And the historical implication of a fixed exchange rate regime and an obsession with gold or Bitcoin or something like that is that in a crisis, extremists come in. Yeah. Now, one of the problems with the Bitcoiners is they kind of want this. This is part of their thing. We're going to tear it down. We're going to knock it down. Mm -hmm. What do they yeah. say in, in these tech bros? Break things and move quickly. Like, fuck off, right? <laughs> you've got people. You've got people to concern about. You have children. You've, no, no, seriously. So my sense is that crypto at the moment and Bitcoin is great if you're really rich yeah. and you're really comfortable. But what happens when you're not? What happens when you're not is the system actually becomes calcified. People get angry. That anger, imagine if we hadn't printed money in the pandemic. Yeah. Imagine if we hadn't printed money after the great crash yeah. in 2008. What would have happened? So well, there, would have been, there wouldn't have been a lockdown because it wouldn't have been possible. But then you're going to have lots of people killed. Yeah. So yeah. my point is, there is a direct relationship between the Black Death, the Merchant of Prato, and the Bitcoiners. It's not a absolutely straight arc, but it's a meandering story which concludes in the same way, which is, if you inject rigidity into your economic system, you will get chaos and weirdness. If you go with the squidgy, messy, fungible notion of printing money, it might not necessarily be pure ideologically, but what it actually does is it saves society in a crisis. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Meet 2024's most anticipated robot vacuum, Eufy X10 Pro Omni. With powerful 8,000 PA suction and MopMaster's dual mop pads, it keeps your floor sparkling clean. It's the winner of five Best of CES awards, and Digital Trends says it boasts almost all the same features as robot vacuums that cost twice as much. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com, and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. John, do you know that in the last five months, five months, yep. 20 million Americans, 20 million Americans have quit their jobs 
right? Wow. That's a phenomenal wow. amount. And the last figures we have are in August, because the figure is always a couple of months out. Yeah. 4.2 million Americans just left their jobs. And one in every 12 people who works in hospitality in America has left their jobs. So the Americans call this thing the great quit. Yeah. Okay, the great resignation. I'm going to give you some other statistics, okay? McKinsey. Yeah. Who would never employ you and I. No. <laughs> no nor would I want to be employed <laughs> by them. Million years, right? But they came out with a, with a report talking about this phenomenon, and they found that 40% of employees are at least somewhat likely to quit in the next three to six months, not just in America, but in a whole host of countries. Right. And in Ireland, survey data in Ireland show that 42% of Irish workers intend to leave their jobs within, within the next year. Wow. To go where? 42% want to do this now, as opposed to 21% before the pandemic. Right. So the idea is the pandemic has changed people's perceptions of work, people's perceptions of jobs, people's perceptions of permanency, and obviously people's perceptions of what life is all about. Yeah. And this, again, is something that, you know, we thought was this, maybe this idea that it would change, but it's actually happening in the States. And of course, the States has much better data. And what's the, what's the upshot of that then? Well, the upshot is that people are actually leaving jobs that they felt they had to stay in. And is this, this is the crux of the, I mean, we've spoken quite a few times about the, the labour crisis, the global labour crisis. So well, it's not a labor crisis. This is obviously people at work saying, you know what? I don't need, shove your job, stuff your job yeah. up your jacksy. I'm going to go and do something else. Right. No, no, but seriously. And it's yeah. really fascinating because had you said at the start of the pandemic, we started the podcast before the pandemic, but yeah. you know, this time last year, this we time- We grew 18, up in the pandemic. We did. John, you and I, we matured. We became of, do you remember- you know, We became come alcoholics. Of age. We definitely became alcoholics. But you remember the come of age? I don't know if you ever read- the Snapper. I did. Right, actually, okay. Yeah. And The Snapper was based in Barrytown all around yeah. the 1990 World Cup. That's right. Right? And one of the great lines in The Snapper, when your man Burgess is trying to avoid the other one, who was, Burgess was the dad. Yeah, the he was doing, he got to And they're watching the Dave O'Leary take the penalty yeah. against the Romanians, right? <laughs> and some lad in the pub says, they're all listening. And George Hamilton is... The, the commentator. commentator, yeah, yeah. And Dave O'Leary scores, and George <laughs> Hamilton says, this is to your point of being built by the child, says, Dave O'Leary came of age today. <laughs> and your man says, Dave O'Leary is 37. <laughs> so I know you came of age in yeah, the pandemic, but did, let's did, talk serious stuff. I came of age in my 50s. <laughs> I know, because we are joined by Rachel Ray. Now, you may not know Rachel, but Rachel, a couple of years ago, I was looking for somebody to help me research Ireland for a book I wrote called The Renaissance Nation. Yep. And Rachel was the, re Rachel, how are you? The finest researcher <laughs> in the whole world. That's some introduction. <laughs> but I'll take it. I'll it, take it. You have to take it. You have to take it. You have to take it. No, but I mean, we did actually do lots of research together. And now, of course, you've been doing B2B marketing for years and years and years. We were chatting the other night 
I said, is this a big thing? Is this a real thing, this great resignation, this, 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 this big quit? And you said, yeah, it is. It's certainly amongst your generation, it's a real thing. What's going on? Yeah, absolutely. I think what we're seeing, one of the things I think that's interesting about those stats that you were saying there earlier is that actually it's not at a flash in the pan when it comes to those stats. Like they're repeated over and over. So the McKinsey thing is also repeated by a Microsoft stat that says the same, you know. And um, the stats around stress in the workplace are repeated again and again by the likes of Deloitte and all those other kind of big names there. So there's definitely a trend going on that's consistently found, not just in the US, but across the board. Um, it was a little bit slower in Europe because, you know, we had you know payments for people and people had certain supports in place. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Differentiated from place to place. But ultimately, it's something that we're seeing on an international scale. And it's something that's really scaring companies at the moment because obviously, you know, everyone's faced a lot of challenges over the last two years. For companies, they've had the additional expenses that come with, say, still running during a pandemic, whether it's like, you know, that the sort of the hygiene and cleaning factors that come into that, um, which has had, you know, astronomical costs for stores and, and things that have kept running and those then that have had closed down. And now what they're seeing is a, a talent drain where they're unable to actually get the workers back in now that things are back up and running again. So tell me, tell me about your 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 generation, because John and I are dinosaurs in this whole thing, right? And also, John and I have never had a proper job, so we're kind of we're kind of that's very we're, true. We were in a kind of a permanent pandemic in our heads, and we have been for years. But uh, you know, in terms of millennials, uh, you know, and the Gen Z and all this, like, is there a sense that there's a total recalibration of what it is about working and what people have to do, people, the obligations people have to have? Yeah, I think I think. I think one of the things you have to remember about millennials as well is we kind of came of age in times of crisis already. So, you know, when I was leaving college, we were in the middle of the recession, you know, and I remember being in UCD at the time and the the speech that was given as we were leaving, you know, the unofficial day was the world is your oyster arts degree students, you go forth and prosper. And then the official, you know, the official day with the official speeches was Australia's sure looking good. Best <laughs> luck uh, within a week. And um, I think, so I, I, I do think there's a, a sense with millennials that the world that's been built before us, that's laid before us, whether it's environmental or work related or whatever that is, is not necessarily the one that we want for ourselves. And work is a big part of that and how people work and the concept of what working is and how it's done. Um, really needs a shaking up, and and this this idea of this great quit because again as I as I said before, you know had you said to people before the pandemic, well the consequence of this will be people saying we don't need to work anymore or we're going to take time off or whatever, is this that I'm putting my old fella hat on here? Is this just a function of the fact the labour market after the pandemic has tightened? There are lots of jobs around. There are many more jobs around. There's lots of opportunities. Wages are rising and rising quite rapidly. And your generation is saying, well, maybe I'm just going to take some time out. I mean, what's the what's the data saying? What's the, I mean, you've done the research on this. What's it saying to us about everything? Yeah, so like recently I'm working with a company called Castus, which is an Irish tech startup company. So it's one of those ones that's in that biotech kind of space. Their whole area is around antibacterial, antimicrobial surfaces. And one of the things that we wanted to look at from a research point of view was this idea of people going back to work. And particularly in the UK, 
where there was a big kind of song and dance about reopening and the reopening dates and Freedom Day, please. Freedom Day. Freedom Day. Freedom Day. <laughs> and actually, you know, what workers' attitudes were to that. So these were people that had been able to work at home. And what we found that was 50% of people are still at home, even though we've which, gone long yeah. past Freedom Day. Which must be the and, much, much higher here. Yeah, yeah. And of that, half of them still don't know what their employer's plans are in terms of, are they going to be remote? Are they not? Are they going to be partly in? Are they going to be relocated to another country? Like there's, there's so many variables going on. And I think there's a lack of sense of control for people, but particularly, I think, with millennials, because when you look at something like in Ireland with housing markets and, you know, this sense of you're not controlling the roof over your head, you're not controlling, you know, when you came out of college and went off on the back foot, you know, starting into jobs. And now you're in the middle of your career and you're not really feeling in control of that or what you do, when you do it, when you have things like have kids, all of that. So I think that's leading to an awful lot of stress and, and resentment within the millennial and, and do you see do you see this like you know this like for example brexit was about to take back control to a degree the big Sinn Féin vote is about you know what the establishment you guys have been in power for a while now you've had your time we want our time now and do you see the same thing the idea of the great resignation as people saying i've bought for the last 10 years the establishment line it's not actually working for me and I'm going to opt out and I'm going to, and I'm going to, I'm going to see what happens in three or four months or a year's time. Do you you see it all together? Like Like it's definitely, it it feels like it is a sort of vote with feet. Yeah. And it reminds me a lot of back in 2010 when it was presumed obviously you didn't have a job and that was okay. You know, so it's, there's almost, there's a permission there as well to kind of take a step back, particularly I think after the amount of stress that people have had over the last year and a half. Like KPMG found that 94% of workers are stressed at the moment. And Oracle had said 2020 was the most stressful year to date on record. Really? Now, I don't know what they're going to say about 2021. We did have Trump in 2020, so maybe that, that might have been a bit of a factor as well there. But yeah, it does, it does feel like it's a reaction to a kind of enough is enough. I'm not getting enough out of this. I've kind of bought into this promise of, you know, be good, go to college, do your unpaid internship for five million years, <laughs> get into work and, and, and do all Live that. Live your for all the time. And the yeah. And it hasn't. And I, I think there's definitely, a, there's definitely a sense there with people that they're kind of taking their fate into their own hands. Do you know, it's kind of surprising and not surprising at the same time. It's not surprising that the millennials are pissed off. No, it's not. And, and, you know, after having two of your formative years taken away from you. But then it's surprising that, because it's still such a precarious time. Well, in my mind it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That yeah. For, for people to go, right, I'm out of here. See you, good luck. Well, you know? I think, yeah, no, it is. It's inter- I think the big takeaway is that the pandemic has completely changed the labour market. So what you've had, we forget that we've had over $11 trillion worth of stimulus in the yeah. last two years, right? So it's lots and lots of money in people's bank accounts, right? $11 trillion. Yeah, that's the whole, that's if you add the whole world together. Right? It's a huge, it's a huge amount, right? So what, the, what that's done is that's created maybe a false sense or a real sense of a little bit more security. Yeah. Right? 
the key takeaway for me is from all this yeah. is you will never get a better chance to get a wage increase, right? So if you are sitting, your employer is prevaricating about a wage increase, be well aware that you are in the ascendancy, right? And now is the time to go looking for wage increases. Yeah. Because it's very obvious to me, we've had this massive stimulus, right? We've had, basically we're in what, what you could probably call a shortage economy, where there's a shortage of stuff, there's a shortage of supply, there's a shortage of everything, yeah, right? Yeah, so yeah. all these bottlenecks we talked about the last week, these are all emerging. Now is the time to strike for wage increases. This is my Marxist, my, my Marxist clarion call <laughs> to the world, right? Uh, because basically now workers are in the driving seat but for the you, first time in ages. Yeah, well, I, I was going to say, because, you know, there are still quite a few companies that I know of that haven't reinstated the wage cuts from 2008. Of course, there are loads. There's loads. I mean, there's so, loads and loads of people who have never gone so back to that So at the very level. least, yeah. th- that should be reinstated. Well, I think so. The first thing is to look at, right? Look at it through the marks. I always say it's crucial to start your analysis with marks, but never end there. Right. Because marks alighted upon a very fundamental idea, right? It wasn't just Marx alighted on this, all economics has for many years, but, but Marx made it his own. And mm. the idea was that there's only two places money can go, right? So in every product, the split in terms of the income from the product goes either to profits, which is to shareholders, yeah. or to wages, which is to workers. Think about that that, that way. Mm. And for the last... Since the 2008 crisis, the bias has been towards profits, which is why you've seen the stock markets go through the roof, yeah. which is why you see massive corporate buybacks, which is massive, which you see massive inequality because the really, really rich have done really, really well. And we've, we've talked about this before, mm. when there's easy money and if you're very rich, you have the collateral against which to borrow to buy more assets, you can actually hoover up all the assets. So it's not the moment that idea of trickle-down economics. Yeah, yeah. I call it hoover-up economics, right? Yeah. That the rich hoovered up everything. Then the <laughs> pandemic hits, and we get to a stage where now we have a shortage of workers. We have lots of workers like Rachel and her generation saying, I'm going to try and take back control in a bit. I was sold a dream. Yeah. That dream hasn't materialized. Yeah, yeah. I now want to think of something else. So that's the big quit, right? But for those people who are still in work, what you see is that at every stage, in every great iteration of economic cycles, the shift between labor and profits, between workers and capital, is the key. And that pendulum swung right in favor of profits for the last 10 years, as we said just now. And now that pendulum is swinging back in favor of wages. Yeah. So wages will rise. Now, certain economists will you'll hear them talking about wage inflation as if it's dangerous. Wage inflation is excellent because yeah. higher wages are what we should all be here for. Right? Yeah, 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 exactly. So some people call it wage inflation. I like to call it economic justice, that basically employees, workers are actually getting their just desserts back a bit, right? That's the first takeaway from that, that the pendulum is swinging towards workers and away from capital, right? In an old Marxist view. Mm. Second thing is that this is exactly what we're seeing in policy, right? In policy, we're seeing a big increase in spending, a big increase in investment, a fundamental change in the way in which we're doing business, not just in this country, but in every in every country. So there's a political trend, there's a social trend, and there's an economic trend. And all of them are bending 
towards higher wages. And this is the arc. So the arc of Justice Benz. Who said that? Judge Dredd. No. <laughs> Martin Luther King. Right. The great arc of morality yes, bends of towards justice, right? Well, the great arc of morality maybe does bend, but it also can be bent by policy, yeah. right? And so this is what I think is happening, and that's what Rachel is picking but up. Is, does this not go back to, you know, the, as you say, wage inflation and that fear, innate fear of inflation in general? So if you have if higher wages, you're going to have higher prices. It's going to push prices up. Yeah, I mean, there is... Now, it's interesting because on Thursday, we're going to come back to this idea, not least because over the weekend, it was announced that Jens Wiedemann, now this main name might mean nothing to you, right, the head of the Bundesbank, an okay. inflation hawk, has just retired early from the Bundesbank in Germany. And I want to talk about what's happening in Germany with respect to inflation and wages and policy. He's part of the great quit as well. He, <laughs> exactly. Except I think he was quite well looked after. Exactly. Yeah. Jens, exactly. Well, I want to talk to you about that. But... Some people talk call wage inflation, I call it economic justice yeah. because of what has been happening for the last 10 or 15 or maybe even 20 years. Yeah, okay? yeah, 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 yeah. Right? But let's end with the Black Death and pandemics. So what the Black Death showed us is that when the labor market is completely disrupted by a pandemic, things really change. Now, what happened in the Black Death was that real wages, because the labor force contracted because people died. Two things happened. One is there was a massive increase in slavery, right? Yeah. Which we yeah, spoke yeah. about earlier on. But the second one is that real wages rose dramatically. Now, it's another strange thing to think of in Ireland. What actually happened after the famine is that real wages rose dramatically in Ireland too after the famine. Right. Because yeah. people died. And so if you imagine there's no workers, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. So the workers who remained in Ireland agitated for much higher wages because the people who would have had those wages actually starved. I mean, it's the, it's the brutal way in which economics works, yeah. right? Yeah. So if you look at all indicators uh, after the famine in Ireland, what you see is the lot of the average Irish person, I know this doesn't sound good in our history books because it goes against our narrative history, improved dramatically in the late 19th century. So much so that the position of workers in early 19th century Ireland was miles better than the position of workers uh, in 1850. So the upswing, yeah, and, yeah. but it was to do with the, the, yeah, yeah, the no, end. I it was to do with yeah. people leaving the country or dying. Same thing in the Black Death, right? And if, for example, 20 million Americans step out of the labor market, it has the same impact as 20 million people not being there anymore. Real wages rise and opportunities for those in the labor market, go up. So the message from the podcast this week is, if you're looking for a wage increase, go for it right now. Thanks again to all our Patreons. And of course, on Patreon, you get ad-free, you get the course, you get AdMax. And the course is a 14-lecture tour around the world of money, past, present, future, the whole thing. You get the notes, you get the reading list, all that. It's all on patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. Hi, I'm Dori Shafrir. And I'm Kate Spencer. And we are the hosts of Forever 35. And today we're talking about Club Med, the best all-inclusive getaway for families. 
Today, Club Med has nearly 70 resorts worldwide, from beachside resorts in the Caribbean and Mexico, to magical locations in the Maldives and Morocco, to ski resorts in the mountains from Canada to the Alps. Between their all-inclusive family programming, wellness offerings, land and water sports, and their French heritage-inspired food and drink offerings, Club Med is the best way to elevate your family getaway, no matter which location you're at. To learn more, visit clubmed.us. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.